This is episode 96 with my brother from another mother, prolific endurance author with more than 20 books to his name and 239 marathoner, Mr. Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and you're about to listen to Strength Running's first live show with author Matt Fitzgerald. If you're not familiar with Matt, he's written more than 20 books about sports nutrition, endurance, running, and the marathon, including some of my favorites like the endurance diet, brain training, racing weight, and diet cults. His latest is a memoir called Life is a Marathon that chronicles his career as a coward when it comes to suffering that inevitably comes with endurance running. But he learns to overcome that suffering, and in doing so, discovers the person that he wants to become, both for himself and for his wife, Nataki, who has severe bipolar disorder. It's a very different type of book about running that I really recommend, especially if you want a moving read that isn't too heavy on training jargon. Now, I also want to be upfront that the format of this episode is a little bit different. This was a live conversation at the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado, So it's a little bit shorter, and after editing out the store's background noise and blasting air conditioning and using one of their microphones, we're left with audio that's less than stellar, but I hope you'll still enjoy it and get something out of it. So without further delay, please enjoy Matt Fitzgerald on what he's learned about failure, happiness, suffering, and love after two decades of becoming a better runner. Thank you, thank you. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming. I've invited everyone here for the most part. Um, And uh, thanks, Tattered Cover, for hosting us this evening. Um, What I want to do is maybe do about 30 minutes of a discussion about Matt's book, and then afterwards we'll take some Q&A from the audience. Um, I'm really excited to speak with Matt. Matt's someone who uh, I noticed very early on just does really incredible work in his writing, uh, in his sports journalism, someone who's perspective on running and training uh, I really respect and keep coming back to. And you are actually now the only person to come on the podcast three times. So congratulations. That That is a huge honor, Matt. That, <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth. Uh, that's a huge honor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm excited you're here. You're probably excited that you're here. We just decriminalized magic mushrooms, which I know is why you're here in Denver. Um <laughs> But let's get started and talk about your book. This, uh, when you invited me to do this, um, I obviously said yes because I, I love your work. And you know, when I started reading your book, I very quickly realized that this is such a different book than you've ever written before. Uh, you know, you've written more than twenty books at this point, and uh, I honestly wasn't accept, uh, uh, expecting this. But it was. Uh, very transformative for me, and it was uh, such an inside look into your life, uh, your relationship with your wife, and uh, it was just so personal. And, you know, I've kind of taken you as a more private person, as I've kind of gotten to know you a little bit over the years. Uh, We met in Boulder a couple years ago, and, uh, you know, I'm just struck by the, uh, the, the, the deep personal nature of this book. What are some of the reasons why you decided to share uh, your story, your family's story, uh, in, in such a personal book like this? 
Yeah, so I think a lot of writers are private people in their one-on-one dealings with people, but they're, they're actually very public through the written word. And I think I might be a typical writer uh, in that regard, where I'll just spill it all uh, on the page, and but when you're just face-to-face with me, I'm zip. Um, but... You know, throughout my life, and I've always wanted to be a writer. I grew up, my father's a writer. I grew up knowing that's what I, what I wanted to do. <clears throat> and again, like a lot of writers, whenever I have an intense experience, I want to share it. I want to write about it. Um, and from uh, the day I met Nataki on a blind date in 1997, um, it was an intense experience uh, in a good way, it, you know, it, it also became intense in, in some bad ways that the book gets into. But I started writing about us, about her, about us, um, very early on. You know, I wrote about that blind date we had almost right after it happened. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, and as a professional, I write about running. Um, and there's not a heck of a lot of space if you're a how-to guy, you know, when when one of you picks up one of my books, generally you're asking what's in it for me, right? Like, how is this book going to make me run better? Um, and there's not a lot of space in that sort of book to force your own personal life down people's throats. But like, I've always done other writing alongside the stuff that you were familiar with and, and that made this book surprising for you. But for me, it's it's not much of a departure from how I've, operated uh all all along um so in terms of the specific reasons it's just that um you know uh so we had this blind date you know our relationship you know Natak and I she's in the audience right here you know as you can see we don't look a lot alike um and you know we're a case of opposites attract and and um and but that was what made our relationship interesting to me um you know I didn't start dating Nataki just because people couldn't figure us out. You know, there was like a definite a, an attraction there, but there was that element of it where I felt like I was on a constant adventure being with someone like Nataki. Um, but then when, uh, as the book gets into, I'm not spilling anything here. Um, when Nataki developed bipolar disorder uh, in 2003, 2004, our relationship became intense in a completely different way. And that was a heavy load. You know, the, has anyone here actually read the book yet? Um, so you'll, you'll see if and when you do read it. Um, you know, we went through some stuff. <laughs> and still that, that desire to share it on through the written word remained alive, but I wasn't going to do that publicly. You know, I mean... You know, I tried to kill myself today because I just see no way out from the misery of being the husband and the primary caregiver to a woman with severe mental illness. Like, that's not a book people want to read. Um, it, you know, so I, I wanted to share. I really did, but I needed a happy ending first. And just to, to finish this answer, this long-winded answer to your question, like, why is it also about running? Um, when it finally came time, when, when we, when Nataki and I got to our sort of happily ever after a, a hard won place where life was good again, um, you know, I, I thought about what, what is the story really? And for me, 
I couldn't separate the story of our relationship, the story of the personal development I had to do in order to survive our ordeal from my identity as a runner, from my experience as a runner. I realized the only reason I got through it was the challenges I took on for my own reasons, completely different reasons as an endurance athlete. And I thought, that's kind of amazing. You know, I probably wouldn't be alive today or we wouldn't be together today if I weren't a runner. Like, that's something that is not really very intuitive, especially if you're not a runner. Um, and so that was the story to me. And uh, it's interesting, when I pitched the book to publishers, a lot of them turned it down because on the grounds that you're trying to make two books one book. This doesn't work. And, and my thought was, yeah, I get that, but you're wrong. You know, it's one story with two facets. Well, I think you do a really good job in the book of drawing these parallels between love and between the difficulty of running and the suffering that comes with racing, long races, you know, the, the inevitable discomfort that you feel. You talk a lot about suffering, and you actually say to love is to sacrifice. Um, what did suffering through running teach you about um, uh, yourself that helped you become the man that you wanted to be, uh, but not just for yourself, but and also for your wife. Yeah, so you saw I've been playing around with the slides here a little bit to go back. So, you know, I, I was a runner, I started at, at age 11. So, in addition to getting the writing from my father, I also got the running from him. He ran his first Boston Marathon in '83. I finished it with him, I ran the last mile with him, and I became a runner. So, these are a couple shots of me running in high school in, in New Hampshire. And um, I did not, uh, there's a great, great quote from uh, Bob Kennedy, the former re American record holder at 5,000 meters. I love, uh, I love that uh, quote that I love. I love Bob too. I've never met him. But, um, <laughs> but the, the, the essence of the quote I'm paraphrasing is that um, the thing you have to understand about racing is that it hurts. Like if you can't accept that idea early on, you're not going to get very far. Um, well, that was me. I couldn't accept the suffering. Like I, I loved running. I had a, a little bit of talent for it. Um, but I was, you know, I probably should have been an individual state champion, um, in tiny New Hampshire in the dark ages of American running <laughs> in the late 1980s. Uh, but I was held back by just this, um, intense aversion for the suffering that you have to embrace if uh if you're going to give it your all on a race course i couldn't do it um and i ended up quitting the sport um now the thing you know and i was hard on myself i viewed myself as a coward i called myself as a coward a, a coward um now there are people who just would have moved on and and said well that's okay running sucks uh the thing i can say in my own defense is that that didn't sit well with me like that i very clearly hated myself for being, for perceiving myself as a coward. So, you know, I quit the sport and I only got back into it uh, about a year after Nataki and I started dating. I randomly did a triathlon on the island of St. Martin, hung over uh, and finished almost last. Um, Very funny story in the book, yeah. by the way. <laughs> There's some comedy in the book, by the way. So, so it's balanced. Tragedy and comedy. Um, but, you know, that experience actually was a humiliation in itself, but of a slightly different kind than the humiliation of how my high school running career ended, but it reawakened those old demons. And I realized I had unfinished business, that 
the thing is, you know, as I say in the book, a coward, the thing I discovered is that a coward on the race course is a coward off the race course. And so I couldn't just solve the problem by quitting running. Um, and so when I got back into endurance sports, yeah, part of it was about just like um, seeing what I could do. Um, but uh, the biggest part of it was completing that journey and changing how I perceived myself as a man. Um, I, I just wanted to be a man I could look in the mirror and respect. Um, and, and, that, and that was all about mastering the suffering. Just being able to to just take the discomfort full on and not blink, um, not in the service of failure, but in the service of success. You know what I mean? I, as I put it in the book, I wanted to conquer hard. I didn't want an easy way to victory. I wanted to win, and I wanted it to be hard. Um, and that, you know, I, I had I did not had no idea that that would end up being training for the the far greater suffering that Mitaki and I experienced. Um, you know, through the, the battle I've described, uh, but it ended up being exactly that. Uh, and so there's a there's a synergy there that where they actually both fed each other. Now, anyone who wants to become the best endurance athlete they can be, you don't don't wish a mental illness on your significant other <laughs> for, for the sake of that. Like that's not how it works. But life is going to be hard for everyone sooner or later. And, and it really does, like, the suffering you experience in life is an opportunity to grow and become stronger. And the work you do to become the best athlete you can be is the same sort of opportunity in, in a different way. So they can actually uh, play off each other in a you know, sort of a mutually beneficial way. Now, you mentioned failure. And you mentioned failure a lot more in the book. What's the relationship between failure uh, as a runner and the lessons that you were pulling from what seemed like a lot of failures. You know, you, you had so many races where you just walked off the course. You had so many races where you didn't even get to start because you were injured. What were those so-called failures in your running career? How did those kind of impact, uh, you know, the way that you viewed your relationship and, and kind of the skills that it gave you to, to, to be a better husband? Yeah, so, you know, one of the trepidations I had about writing this book was um, just how, you know, I look back on on my journey as an endurance athlete, and I realized it was mostly failure. I mean, it really was, like, one after another, and I thought, this could destroy my career, like, <laughs> because I put myself out there as the guy with the answers, right? It's like, you know, just do as I say, and you'll be successful, you know, it's like going to a marriage and family therapist who's thrice divorced, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I'm going to take this from you. Um, but the funny thing is about the failure that I've experienced is that I get over it really quickly. You know, I like, you know, it's interesting. Like, I don't fail nearly as much now you know, that we might get into that. You know, I just did an Ironman. It went well. Like my last few marathons have gone well. But I used to fail all the time, and it was it hurts, you know. You know how long it takes to prepare for one of these events, and you put such hopes on it. And then if you just get, you know, before my first Boston Marathon, this would have been in 2001, I was in the shape of my life. I destroyed my half marathon PR, and then I got injured like 10 days out. Couldn't do the race. It's like, that is crushing. But, I mean, that, that devastation lasted about five minutes for me, like, for whatever reason, that's how I'm wired. 
And so I'm, I, I, I would fail, but I would move on. I would be like, well, I'm not dead yet. You know, it's like, I would just be on to the next thing. It's interesting, you know, my, writing is a tough business. And you, no matter how good you are at it or whatever, you experience a lot of failure as a writer. And my dad, when he saw that I wanted to go down that path, one of the best pieces of advice he gave me was, when you're when you submit something and it's very likely to be rejected because that's just how it works. Like, start working on the next project because it'll soften the blow of rejection when it comes. And I I took that to heart. So I've always done that as a writer, and I think I do it as an athlete as well. So I would fail, but the the next thing was already out there for me, and I was just instantly all about that. It's like, oh well, that sucked, but on to the next thing. Um, and again, like everything else in endurance sports, it that mentality, that mindset did translate back to life where I, it, I don't I don't lose hope easily. And, you know, some of the stuff Mataki and I went through is just. It's it was really bad, <laughs> you, you know, just a lot of 911 calls and, um, you know, near death experiences, just, you know, it's about as bad as everyday life can get. Um, and yet, you know, it, it really was exactly the same. Like when the when the immediate crisis was passed, I was looking forward. I, I had hope that it could get better. Um, and so, you know, that's those crises. It's not exactly the, the sort of failure you experience when you have a bad race, but it's not that different either. And so maybe the same coping skills really got got me through both. Yeah, that reminds me of the line where, you know, when it comes to failure, it's a good thing for distance runners to have a short memory, but be eternally optimistic. And so whenever you have a bad race or you get injured, you fall off the horse, you got to just continue on. Um, now, Matt, you've, you've learned so much. You've kind of gone through uh, so much athletically in your personal life. What would you say to someone who's going through some real hard adversity right now? What, what kind of lessons would you have for that person um, tonight? Yeah, you know, one one thing for me, and like I'm not a self-help guru, like I, I've just had, <laughs> that's that's in the book. <laughs> that's, I know the story. Yeah, so, you know, I can only speak from my experience. I can't speak, I don't, I don't know what a psychologist would say, um, but um, uh, just, you know, based on my own experience, I, I have discovered, and again, as an athlete first, really, you have so much more control over your thoughts and emotions than you think you do. Um, you know, I'll just, you know, these tattoos are not, these are not prison tattoos. I did an Ironman triathlon on Saturday. Um, you know, that's, you're basically in exercising intensely all day. It's really hard and things go wrong and you know just based on all of my experience as an athlete and my journey with with Nataki like I was mentally indestructible throughout that day and like shit went wrong left and right and it was really hard I was I was not just trying to finish I was trying to qualify for the world championship so I'm you know I am getting after it and I I, I had a lot I, I Nataki would tell you you know, the, the time and energy and money I invested in preparing for this race. It was a huge deal for me and it was incredibly hard. Um, 
but I was absolutely in control of my mind from, from start to finish. Like, you know, I, I halfway through the bike ride, I got a drafting penalty. I'm not a cheater. Sometimes it's hard to avoid these things. Um, so it's like five minutes. You have to get off your bike and stand for five minutes. And you're trying to like qualify for the world championship. Like think about how long those five minutes are. But I was like just joking with the referee and like, I was just like, you know, things happen. And, um, it sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, but all, all I'm really saying is that I got to this place through work and experience and, and I'm nothing special. My, my whole point actually is that I wasn't born this way. Like, by nature, I am a mental weakling, you know, but I was intentional about changing that. And I did change it. Yes, partly through experiences that I didn't choose. Um, but, you know, I, I have so, and it, it's really a good feeling, actually, because I, I was out on that race course with things going wrong. And just there's a comfort in knowing that you're in control. That's just like, you know what, like, the referee can't F with that, like, my energy gels fell out of my back pockets like that can't after with that nothing can like i have control over that and it's the same in everyday life you know early on when when nataki got sick and you know she would have episodes like i would make all the wrong moves like you know i was my intentions were good you know i, I would try to de-escalate or you know whatever just turn a bad situation into a good situation and i made missteps left and right um, and I was very quick to hit the panic button. Um, is there anything I say, say not true? <laughs> and, and now it's, I'm not perfect, but I've gotten so much better for, uh, this is, this is the night before my first triathlon, by the way, I'm, I'm out at like 1am drunk and I'm going to race at seven. <laughs> um, probably not a good idea. No, but it makes a good story, which makes a good book. Um, yeah, so. I've gotten so much better, you know, you know, off the race course as well. Like, you know, when to, no, thankfully, Nataki's bad days aren't nearly as bad as they used to be. But when she has a bad day, um, I, I just I feel that same sense of control where it's almost like I'm able to just step back from my own self and observe myself and not just react, but choose a reaction. Um, and so that's, you know to get back to the question you asked, like my advice for people is just to, to actually recognize that sometimes you feel like you don't have control at all. You know, when you're in a bad situation, especially if it's a surprise, bad thing that happens, you feel like, ah, you know, all I can do is just react instinctively, but that's not true. It takes some training, uh, but you can actually choose who you're going to be. And it, it could be a bank robbery, you know, that you just walk into. And you could be a hero in that situation just through the, you know, the sort of work you do to gain control over your own thoughts and emotions. Matt, I want to end on uh, happiness. Talk a little bit more about happiness. You uh, wrote in your book that the happiest people seem to be becoming their best self. And, and this really resonated with me. It really stuck with me. Um, it reminds me that uh, of a line I heard a while back, don't pursue happiness. Find ha happiness in the pursuit of something that you love. And uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about this, explain what you mean by uh, the happiest people seem to be becoming and uh, how we can maybe use running to be uh, to become happier people. Yeah, so the way I look at it, and this is, you know, everyone probably has their own thoughts about the recipe for happiness. And if, if mine 
I'm glad mine resonate with you. Um, if they don't resonate with you, that's fine. Like, but this is my perspective. You know, instinctively, the way we pursue happiness is to have everything go our way, right? I mean, who wouldn't? You know, like, and you're a fool if you don't try to get things the way you want them, right? If you have a vision of, like, if you like, uh, if you like ham and you hate broccoli, you're gonna eat more ham and eat, eat less broccoli, right? You know, if you if you'd rather live in Colorado than California, you're probably going to make that choice if you can. So it only makes sense to try to make life easy and comfortable uh, and to make things fit your tastes and to avoid you know, pain and trauma. So we all do that in the pursuit of happiness. The thing is, it never works out. <laughs> like things are not going to keep going your way all the time. So you know, sooner or later, in one way or another, life is going to turn hard. It just is. Um, and if, ever, if anyone is familiar with the story of the Buddha, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, like, that's what that parable is all about. Like, he was born a prince. He was pampered and sheltered by his father, the king, who wanted to protect him from any negative experiences, and it didn't work. It just, like, even, even when, like, he had everything, you know, he was a prince, he had a father who was trying to protect him from any suffering, didn't work. It never works. So given that, given that you, you can't get to happiness by having everything around you perfect, like what's the alternative? It's becoming a person who can be happy even when everything is going wrong. And from my perspective, strength, just inner strength is, is that thing where you just, you have that sense of, that, that sort of confidence that, yeah, I, things are going fine now, but I know they're not going to keep going fine, but I'll be okay then. It gets right back to my, my Ironman experience. Like, not only did I have a good race result because of where my mind was, but I had a better experience. Like, I enjoyed myself out there. I suffered like a dog, but, I, you know, I, I enjoyed myself. Um, and, you know, when I sign copies of this book for people, I often, one of the inscriptions... I you know, have a rotation author's trick. You don't you don't come up with a completely original one every time. <laughs> but uh, one of the ones I in my rotation is like you know there are no easy lives, but um, through strength even a hard life can be beautiful. Um, and that's how I feel. Like I just at this point in my life, um, you know Nataki and I are in in such a better place than we were before. But things are, are still hard. My, my mom has Alzheimer's disease. Um, you know, I still have, uh, there's a book I'm trying to sell that nobody wants, and that's disappointing. Oh, this is my, my running bum book. <laughs> um, and, and so life continues to be hard in different ways, but like, I'm cool with it. Like, you know, and that to me is happiness, and it really just comes from just knowing my own strength. That, that I was not born with, but earned. Well, I think that comes across really well in the book. Um, and I just want to thank you for, for being here tonight. Thank you so much, Nataki. Thank you for being here. Uh, I didn't know you were going to be here, so this is a real treat for me.
And there we have it, my live conversation with Matt Fitzgerald about his newest book, Life is a Marathon. I hope you'll check it out. I surprised myself by reading it in just a week, and I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that. It made me laugh out loud and even cry a little bit. It's a powerful book. And finally, I want to thank all of you who have recently went on Apple Music and rated or reviewed this podcast. I saw a bunch come in over the last couple weeks, and I'm enormously grateful. These reviews tell iTunes that the show is worthwhile, and they're more likely to give it some extra visibility. If you're someone who listens regularly, enjoys the show, and maybe even credit a personal best or a new training strategy to one of our episodes, I would greatly appreciate a review. They make a big difference. Thank you again for being here, and stay tuned later this week, for real this time, for our next guest, Ms. Kate Grace. We'll be in touch soon.